0: So this morning, we're finishing up our series in Daniel. So we're, if you haven't been with us, we're in Daniel chapter 6. We have been in Daniel. This is our sixth message in the book of Daniel uh, in this series, Unshakable. And it's, it's been a, a great time for me to study some, some, some passages that are very familiar to us, some uh, less familiar. But today, we come to what is uh, really the most familiar story, I would assume, in the book of Daniel and from the life of Daniel. It's Daniel and Daniel the lion's den, okay? And so great familiar story that you, many of you have heard ever since you were a child and I'm gonna talk about this a little bit more later but sometimes we, we think of this as a children's story. and Now listen, it's a senior adult story. Daniel's not 8 when this happens. Daniel's in his 80s in this story. And so this is just an incredible story for all of us for all ages this morning. Uh, just a powerful story of Daniel as we continue this idea of unshakable. And this morning we're going to talk about this idea of unshakable devotion. Unshakable devotion. Daniel paints a picture for us with his life, really, and it really comes to a culmination here in chapter 6 of what it looks like to be just unshakably, unflinchingly devoted to God, just a deep love for God that leads to an incredible faithfulness to his God, you know, Daniel's life in Babylon up to this point has been characterized by unwavering devotion. If you really think about it, Daniel's not living the life that he ever expected to live. Um, he is most likely connected to, to royalty in some way. Uh, it, was the, it was the best of the best that got abducted, right, and brought in and kind of brainwashed, they tried to anyway, um, there in Babylon uh, when they besieged Jerusalem and they led them in exile. And, and, and the, the best of the best youths, many of those from the royal court and things of that nature, Nebuchadnezzar had brought in and tried to to turn into his own servants. And so Daniel, from the the moment he was probably 12, 13, 14, 15 years old in those kind of preteen, early teen years, somewhere in there, his life radically is changed. He's separated from his family, and he's brought into this new place, this foreign place, uh, and you know, at some point, he's probably hoping to go back to Jerusalem, but here he is in his 80s. He's been in Babylon all these years, and now he's serving under a new kingdom. It's no longer uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian empire that's ruling, it's now the Medo-Persians. As we saw last week, Babylon fell, right? And now he's serving a new king and a new ruler, and, but life is just not what probably he had ever intended. In the midst of all of that, Daniel gives us an incredible picture of faithfulness to God. And faithfulness is born in the heart of those that have a relationship with the faithful God. Listen, you you can't be devoted to God until you first understand how devoted God is to you. You can't be faithful to God until first you understand how faithful God is to you. You can't love God until you first understand that God loves you. We love because he what? First loved us, right? And so it begins with God. And so really all through these six chapters, we have seen the faithfulness of God to his people, protecting and watching over them and, and just kind of showing up and showing off in all these various ways. And just a great culmination here in Daniel chapter 6. And so today as we walk through this story, I want to show you four principles for a life of unshakable devotion from Daniel's story. And we'll see ultimately how this story points us to the chief motivating factor for a life of devotion to God, and that is the God that is devoted to his people. So look with me in Daniel chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. Daniel 6, verse 1. It's on the screen for you uh, this morning. This screen, this screen, as you know, is down, hopefully uh, not next week, but um, as we continue, like I said, pardon our Progress. Here we go. Starting in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over the three high officials of Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give their high, the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So at this point right? In Daniel, the Medo-Persians have taken over Babylon, and Daniel's now most likely, like I said, in his 80s, some even say it could be early 90s, and he finds himself with a new government, a new boss, a lot of change for someone at his stage in life. A lot has changed. And so he's kind of he, he's, he's, he's kind of in this situation where he's kind of been on the bench, it seemed like, for 20 years, ignored by the last king. And then he gets that opportunity we saw last week to go in and say, yeah, I can tell you what the wall says. It says your kingdom's over, right? You have been weighed and found wanting, and, and that that kingdom falls, new kingdom comes into rule and quickly Daniel makes his way up the ladder and so as, uh, as, this, as this ruler begins to look around and figure out people that he can trust and that he can put in positions of authority, he decides I need three guys to kind of be my senior VPs that can go out and that I can trust and that I can hand things to and Daniel's one of those guys. And then Daniel stands out so much that he's looking to make Daniel kind of like his number two, like the guy over the whole kingdom. And we're going to see that people aren't going to like that. Look at verse 4, then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, they're jealous, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Verse 6, then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. Verse 7, all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition, whoever prays to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish this injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, and here's the key phrase, as he had done previously. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Let's pause there. So what a picture here. Daniel falls victim to jealousy. Much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, Daniel finds himself being hated by those who are jealous of his rise to prominent prominence. And they look for a way to take Daniel out, and they cannot find one. And the only hope they have, the only flaw they can find in Daniel is that Daniel is more devoted to God than Daniel is devoted to Darius. That's his only flaw. They look and they go, there's no fault in him. We can't find a way. He hasn't said an ugly thing about the king. He hasn't done something unethical. There's really no way to take him down except he loves God more than anything or anyone. So if we can find a way for... for somehow the, his law and, and his love for God to, to cross swords, so to speak, with what's going on with, with Darius and his king. If we can find a way for them to conflict, if we can put Daniel in this position where he's got to choose between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, we'll get him. And they were right. And, and think about this. I think, we just need the law to last 30 days. They're thinking, oh, we need the man can't go 30 days without praying. The man can't go 30 days without us finding out that he's praying. There's no way Just think about that. That's how devoted Daniel was. And they knew exactly where to go and exactly where to find him to take him down. His only weakness to them was his godliness. And here's the first thing we learn from Daniel about unshakable devotion and living a life of unshakable devotion. If you want to live, we want to live lives of unshakable devotion. The first principle, number one, be consistent in your walk with God. Be consistent in your walk with God. Daniel's consistency in his walk with God is on full display in these verses. Notice the only way they could take him down, right, was that choice between God and king. They couldn't find anything else. And so they actually tricked the king here. Remember, the king likes Daniel. He's about to promote Daniel, to make him his right-hand man. He sees an excellent spirit in him, the te- text tells us. We keep seeing that. Chapter 5, chapter 6, is excellent spirit within him, the spirit of God working in and through Daniel. And he trusts Daniel because of his character. So they have to trick the king. So they come up with this rule about no prayer to anyone for 30 days. Now, why would the king go for that? Why would he go for that? Remember, he's forming a new kingdom. This would have been in the first couple of years of getting this kingdom established. He's trying to get things organized. They've taken over this empire, and and he's trying to get things organized and all this kind of stuff. And so he's probably thinking, we can't know for sure, what a great way to establish some national unity, right? He's thinking, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll show our unity by everybody's, whatever God you pray to. Well, for these 30 days, you won't pray to that God. If you pray at all, you're going to pray to me. Right, And, and so he it, like, thinks, yeah, what a, what a great way to kind of rally the troops and get everybody focused on our government and moving things forward. Now, according to their law, if the king signed a document and made that a law, he can't change it. In other words, the law was above the king. Okay, And so he, if he signed it into law, it was law. And he couldn't just go willy-nilly changing that. So for 30 days, this would be the law, and he would have no way around it. And notice they lied to the king because they tell him all the high officials were for this. Well, who was one of the three high officials? Daniel. You think he was for this? No, of course not. So they're lying to him. And so Daniel finds out about it, as we see in the text, afterwards. And Daniel sees this document as signed and it's law. And what does he do, verse 10? When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, opened towards Jerusalem, got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. He just did what he always did. He went to his house and prayed. And Daniel had a reputation, right? He had a reputation for his devotion to God. He was so consistent in his walk with God, he had a reputation for it. And that reputation was born through prayer. Daniel was able to live like he did publicly because of who Daniel was privately, right? Daniel spent time with God in prayer, therefore he was able to stand before God in public. And and, and Daniel's not shaking his fist at the government here, right? He's not. He's not cowering in fear either, though. He's simply being who he is. He's living out his faith as he did before. The law is not motivating Daniel and the law is not demotivating Daniel. Daniel's just being Daniel. He's living out his faith. Daniel's commitment to God, his devotion to God has absolutely nothing to do with what the law of the land is. It's not like, oh, you're gonna take my right away from me? Well, now all of a sudden, I'm gonna get real serious about this. Well, that doesn't show love for God. That just shows you don't like something, right? I mean, anybody can be just, Honory, right? He loves God, and so what does he do? He didn't have to change anything. He just goes about his business. In fact, the reason they call on this law is because they knew. Daniel goes up to that room, opens the windows, points towards Jerusalem, and prays three times every day. So they knew they could get him with that law. He was a man of prayer. And Daniel's consistency in his walk with God prepared him for this moment. We see this was his practice. We see he had a reputation for it. But also, Daniel's consistency propelled him in this moment. See, he found his strength in God through prayer. It, it, the word there in the Hebrew, when it talks about he's, he, he, went and he he pleased for God, it's going to tell, well, actually, we haven't gotten there yet. But when they go before the king here in just a moment, we're going to read, and they tell the king that what Daniel's praying, it basically means he's asking for help. And so his, his routine didn't change, but, but what he prayed for might have. Right, And so he went and prayed like he always prayed, but he probably see the tr- sees the trial that's coming and he begins to call to God. And, and, and why is he facing Jerusalem? Right, Well, that's where the temple had been, right? Before they get ransacked by the Babylonians many years before this. And so that symbolized for Daniel the presence of God. And so that was his pattern. He goes, because he longs for the day when the temple and the people of God return to Jerusalem. And to Jerusalem, him symbolizes God and his presence and his promises and his people and all that. And so, just in that kind of solidarity, he, he points that way and he prays, focusing on his relationship with God and the presence of God. That was his pattern. Consistency, day in and day out. He did as he had always done. How about us? It begs the question, are we consistent in our walk with God? Listen, people living lives of true devotion, truly faithful, truly sold out, it's about consistency. Now, don't misunderstand me. We all have inconsistencies. We all all believe one thing and say another sometimes, believe one way and act another one time. We all have little bits of hypocrisy that sneaks into our lives because we're fallen and we're sinful. But I'm talking here, an inconsistent life is one where we do not pursue God as a pattern of life. Now, I, I'm, I'm, we ride the roller coaster, right? And we wonder why our walk with God's not what it should be. And there's just, We don't have the patterns in our life to encourage a consistent walk with God. We don't habitually pray. We don't habitually read the Bible. We don't habitually go to church. It, it would be just as likely that we wouldn't read the Bible or wouldn't pray today as that we would. It's like a coin toss. Am I going to church today? It's a coin toss, right? There's no consistent patterns in our life. There's no consistency. And so our spiritual life does this. And our private lives in those moments are not preparing us for public pressures that may very well come. If we're not consistent in our walk with God, if we do not consistently pray and get into God's Word and gather with the assembled church, and if we don't consistently seek to obey God and pursue the things of God, then our private lives will not prepare us for the public pressures. See, readiness is born in consistency. Uh, it happens in consistency. Uh, that's how you stay ready for whatever spiritual trial or pressure may come. You know, Cannon's our oldest. He's, he's playing like real baseball this year, right? And so, which brings a lot of prayer into my life during those practices and those games. But um, one thing I'm always trying to teach, Cannon struggles with just paying a ticket. Baseball is kind of a slow game, right? So you can stand in your position for 10 minutes and nothing happened, right? And for a seven-year-old, that's tough. But I'm always telling him, you know, you got to be ready, right? And you got to look ready all the time because the moment you're not ready is when something happens. Because if you want to consistently play well and, and not miss balls but catch balls on a baseball field, readiness, is, it, it's born in consistency, consistently staying ready. And then when the balls hit, you're ready. It's the same way in our spiritual lives. And whether it's a sport you're playing or whether it's something at the job site, in our spiritual lives, it's the same way. The way we stay ready spiritually for the spiritual attacks that may happen, for the trials that may come that we don't know about, is to consistently walk with God, right? Not just praying when we feel like we need to. Not just praying when we feel like we have the time to. Not just going to church when it's convenient and I can can carve it out of my schedule, right? But this is my habit. This is what I do because I am sold out. I am devoted to God. Consistency. Is your private devotion to God preparing you for public trials and moments, and moments of ministry? Opportunities that may come your way. Is your prayer life consistent? I mean, I mean if people were spying out us, it's cheesy to think about, you know, to apply it this way, we think, oh, you know, don't put me in this situation, don't ask me this question. But really, if they were spying out us and trying to figure out how to take us down, Could they say, well, if we just made a rule about, you know, not praying for 30 days, that would get them, you know? Consistency. Verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel. He likes Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, no, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So he's upset, right? He's fran- he only had till sundown to, to change, to figure out a way through this. He's looking for a loophole. There's not one. Verse 16, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Now, the seal of the king here would deter anyone from messing with the den, right? The writer putting that in there because, because of what's about to come. You don't want us mentally thinking, oh, I bet somebody somehow, you know, drugged these lions or they did Maybe the lions weren't hungry. Maybe somehow Daniel got out and got back in. No, he, he's letting you know it was sealed with the king's seal. Anybody that breaks that seal without the word of the king, they're going to they're be in the den with the lions, right? He's letting us know that this was a real situation. Verse 19, then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him. Because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Why is that in there? Because he wants us to know the lions were hungry. (laughs) This wasn't a situation that, 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 that Daniel just somehow, you know, hid out in a corner all night and survived this. No, that, that, he's wanting us to know, no, this is a miracle, right? And that God actually delivered him. And it shows us also just how kind of cruel this regime was. It gives us this picture here of what actually happened to just kind of show us, man, this, this was someone who didn't have a problem feeding people to lions that he viewed as his enemies. But he didn't view Daniel as an enemy. And it tells us the reason Daniel was delivered was real simple, because he had trusted in his God. Second thing about a life of unshakable devotion to God, if we're gonna, the second principle we can apply is number two, believe God at all times. Or trust God, however you wanna say it. Believe God at all times. People of unshakable devotion to God are people who believe God. They trust God, they have genuine faith in God. Saw this in Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they trusted God in their trial. They trusted his plan to deliver them out of the fire or through the fire. They left that to God. They simply trusted God. And what it means to trust God, it means to believe him. I don't mean to believe in him. The devil believes in him. Demons believe in him, the Bible says, and shudder. There's a difference in believing God and believing in God. Believing God means I believe his word. I believe his promises. I believe he's who he says he is. I believe his character I take him at his word. I believe he's good and I believe he's powerful, all powerful. And if I really believe him and I believe he's who he says he is and I believe his promises and I believe his word, then I will trust him because there's no reason to trust him, not to trust him with my life, if I believe what he says and he's who he says he is. And Daniel had that kind of faith, the kind of belief, the kind of trust in God that shaped his entire life, shaped his choices and his priorities and his words. Daniel was different because he believed God, because he trusted God. In verse 21, Darius called out the, to Daniel, he called him the servant of God. He says to Daniel, you're, you're God whom you serve continually. See, the, this, the way this pagan king knew of God was that he was Daniel's God. Think about that. He doesn't know him as Yahweh. He doesn't know him, I mean, he, he doesn't he didn't know God in a personal way. He knows that Daniel worships that God. That's how he views God, right? Think about that for a moment. How many people do you know at work or in your family or in your neighborhood that all they really know of God is that that's your God? That's so-and-so's God. That's, That's Josh's God. Daniel's faith had so formed his life that he... When this guy thought of Daniel, he thought of his God. When he thought of Daniel's God, he thought of Daniel. He knew Daniel was one who continually, as he says, served God. He calls him God's servant. He knew where Daniel's loyalty ultimately was. He knew that Daniel wasn't ultimately his servant, that he was God's servant. He he knew who Daniel was devoted to. And Daniel's believing and trusting God, his faith in God, led him to this deep devotion. In verse 22, it says Daniel was found blameless before God and the king. In other words, he had done nothing wrong and God had vindicated Daniel by saving him here. Daniel simply trusted God had a plan and all this and he trusted God to protect him, to provide for him and to vindicate his character and God did. But Daniel was okay if this cost him his life, right? How do we know? Because listen, it would have been easy to not pray for 30 days in a way that anybody could see. Right, he could just say, well, you know, I'll just pray in my mind the next 30 days. Right? I dare, I dare say some of us in this room haven't prayed out loud in years. Which is a shame, by the way. You should get alone, get somewhere where you can pray out loud. He could say, I'll just walk around. I'm praying. Nobody knows. Right? But see, that, that would have been changing his pattern. And that would have given the appearance that he was going along with the law. But see, when you believe God, you can't just fold your tent and go home when things get tough. You you can't just excuse yourself not to pray. You can't just excuse yourself to sin against God because you understand God hasn't changed. His word hasn't changed. Only the circumstances haven't changed. And either the circumstances will be God in your life or God will be God in your life. But you can't bend to the circumstances because the circumstances change. And when you believe God is who he says he is and you really trust him, it changes how you view your circumstances. And you see, the changing circumstances give you a chance to show your trust in God. A chance to show you take him at his word. Not a time to, to bail on your walk with God. Listen, faith is made for those moments. <laughs> Trusting God is made for those big moments. Like, umbrellas, made for the rain, right? Does us it, does no good to just leave it. What good is an umbrella if we don't use it in the rain? Why good is our faith if, if we cower and we buckle when times get difficult or when we're put under pressure, do we trust God? Do we believe God? Do we take God at his word? Now that starts at conversion, right? I mean, that's what salvation is. It's, it's trusting Christ that he, that he can save you, that he died for you, and that he rose again. But, but it's not like this one-time thing. It, it's this, you begin a life of continually trusting God, and you trust him more and more, and the better you know him, the more you trust him. The Christian life is a life of faith and trust and believing God every step of the way. And see, God, you learn over time, God uses your trials and your circumstances to strengthen your faith, to strengthen your trust in him. And that's not, pain, that's not a painless thing, right? But it's still a beneficial thing. We don't like it in the moment, but the results are good, right? It's like going to the gym. It's not fun. That's your psychopath. Just kidding. Some people like that thing. I get it. But it's about the end result, right? You you run that extra mile or you lift that extra weight or you do whatever you do or or you conform your diet because there's an end result that you're looking to. It's not because it's fun in the moment to eat that or to not eat that or to run this much or do whatever you're doing. The pain and the process has an end result. And it's the same way with our trials and our circumstances. They're not fun. (laughs) No, they stink. Suffering. Stinks. Nobody likes that. But the Bible all the way through, Old Testament and New Testament, teaches us that God uses it for our good. And he uses it to strengthen our faith. And he uses it ultimately in the end to make us more like Christ. The process is painful at times, but the end result is strength and godliness. Look at verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my, all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Think about what God did right here. God delivered Daniel... And God caused a pagan king to praise him. And what was the stage on which God performed this great miracle? It was this encounter with the lion's den. And it came about because of Daniel's devotion to God. It led him to being put in this situation, right? If Daniel's a coward, if Daniel's faith buckles, if if Daniel cowers in fear, he's not even put in this situation. And you don't have a praising king. You don't have this song at the end where this king, this poem, where he's calling out and praising God. You, You see, God worked through Daniel and his devotion to him to bring about the circumstance and then he performed the miracle in the midst of the circumstance. And what Daniel was in the midst of all this was simply a willing witness. A willing witness. Number three. Number three, be a willing witness. Uh, Living a life of unshakable devotion means being a willing witness to God and what he can do and his salvation and and his work. Daniel lived in such a way that he could be this kind of witness. He could provide opportunity for God to show off and to to show others who he was, that he saves and he delivers. Notice that Darius says about God that he he calls him the God of Daniel. He calls him the living God. See, the, the idols... The false idols of, of their culture wouldn't save. False gods couldn't deliver, but he says, he says, Daniel's God's a living God. In other words, he, he's alive. He's not just some statue. He, he has the ability to save and to deliver. And people of unshakable devotion to God live with the hope that God will show the world that he delivers and rescues through them. What was it Darius noticed about God in the midst of all this? When when you really get to the heart of what he writes here, what happened that made him praise God was the fact that God saved Daniel from the power of the lions. God's act of salvation on behalf of Daniel, that's what got the king's attention. And of course it did, right? Right? And believer, if you're, if you're here this morning and you're in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, God has delivered you from something as well. Maybe not a lion's den, but something much more deadly, and that is your sin. He's delivered you. He's rescued you from a more powerful foe than a lion. If you're in Christ, he saved you and rescued you from sin, death, and hell. And God wants to make the world Look at your life and how God has delivered you and how God has saved you and how God has changed you and how, what God's doing in your life and say, wow, there God delivers from sin. He delivers. He changes lives. He rescues people. See, God's work in and through your life is about more than just you. It's about more than us. God's work in Daniel's life brought glory to God, first of all. Right? God wants the glory. God deserves the glory. God's activity in your life it's about more than you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's it's about him and about his glory. We're we're not worthy of that. God's changing your life and and how he's, he's progressing you in your Christian life and how you're letting go of sin and following Christ. It's about more than you. It's bigger than that. But at the same time it's also not only about God's glory but it's about God's glory among the nations and among those who are far from God and among those who don't know God. See God wanted to show himself mighty in this pagan land to this pagan king because the only hope for Darius, the only hope for any Medo-Persian was the God of Daniel. See, our marriages, they're about more than us. You know, the Bible tells us in Ephesians that they're about the gospel, Ephesians 5, and pointing people to the reality of Christ's love for his church. It's a witness to a watching world. Our jobs are about more than us. It's a way to be a witness The way we handle slander and betrayal and gossip about us, it's about more. The way we handle pressure and trials and difficulty, it's about more than us. It's about living in a way that glorifies God so that a watching world goes, wow, that's a God that saves and delivers. Listen, it's like when you go to a play. And you see the big stage up there, right? And all the actors are on the stage and the people performing and the people that are doing it. And then in the audience, you have spectators. That's where I'm always at, right? If I go to something like that. I'm not up there. I'm, but this morning, right? You're not spectators. We're all participating in worship. So I'm on the stage and, and, and you're listening. But when you go to a play, it's like a performance. And all the people that have something to do in the performance, they're, they're coming and going. All the action happens on the stage. And the spectators, we're, we're just kind of taking it all in. And sometimes we look at our life and we think God's a spectator and that he's like the audience, right? We even use the phrase sometimes audience of one like when we talk about worshiping or whatever. But it's, we think like he's, he's watching and that's, like, that's a very deistic look at God, right? That he's just, he's just kind of set the world in motion and he sets it back. And look. That's not a biblical view of God. See, God, God's not a spectator. God is actively working on the stage of your life. Your, your life is like a grand stage and God is, wants to do something in and through your life that gets the attention of all the spectators for his glory and for his purposes. And we need to live in such a way that we give God ample opportunity. See, God wants to point others to himself through you and through what he does in your life. And sometimes that's even in painful moments. Sometimes it's even in things that we wish we didn't have to go through. But in the midst of that, we don't know how God might ultimately use this. We just need to ultimately understand we need to be a willing witness. And we need to live in such a way that people look and they go, wow, the God of is a saving and delivering God. There's one more thing here, though. Look at verse 28, the last verse. We haven't read it yet. It says, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And that kind of ends the, the narrative, non-prophetic sort of focus of Daniel. And it, it, everything changes starting with chapter 7. Daniel, This Daniel, he prospered during the reign of Darius. You know, it's just kind of a like lot more of the same, right? I mean, we've seen this. He, he comes into Babylon as a teenager. He prospers, right? God uses him. Nebuchadnezzar dies, 20 years go by, new king. Daniel gets his opportunity, he walks out, God uses him, kingdom falls. New kingdom comes, whole new people come in. Daniel rises to prominence. People conspire against Daniel, he's thrown in a lion's, then God delivers him and then it says he prospers during the reign of Darius. Just more of the same, but here's the difference. I mentioned it at the beginning, Daniel was in his 80s at this point in his life. Some even say maybe early 90s. Imagine being thrown in with lions at 85 years old. Daniel has served God and he served these kingdoms well. He should be retired at this point, living out his golden years in luxury in, in, a, in a castle somewhere. He, he, he's, done, he's done enough, right? Isn't there someone else that can be thrown into a den of lions? Isn't there someone else that can read the writing on the wall? Isn't there someone else? But here he is. Facing lions in his 80s, being used by God, prospering in this kingdom, actively serving. You know, the Bible is full of stories of God using people, mature in age, to do some of the things, maybe the, the greatest miracle or the greatest way God used them many times happened later in life. Think about Abraham. He was in his 70s when God called him out of paganism, when God called him out of idol worship and called him to himself in his 70s. He was like 100 when the child of the promise comes, Right? Moses, how old was Moses when God called him through the burning bush? He was 80 because he really messed his life up at 40. <laughs> at 40, he killed a man and went and hid for 40 years, right? And then at 80, burning bush, God calls him and God uses him. At the age of 85, remember Caleb in the Bible, in the book of Joshua? At the age of 85, Caleb requests to claim the land of inheritance that Moses had promised him years before. And this is what he says. I love this. Joshua fourteen twelve. Let me read it to you. He's been promised this land, but now he's, he's older. He's 85 years old. This is what he says. He says, So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. In other words, there's these enemies there. There's these pagan idol worshipers there. And so you might, you might not want to give me the land at 85 because how am I gonna take it? But he says, it may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. He says, I want the land you promised me. I don't care who's there and who's occupied. It could just be that God will lead me to go in there and run them all off, right? Just stubborn in his faith at 85. See, God may want to do his greatest work in and through you at the age of 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or 95. God, if you're here, God has a plan for us. Young folks and older folks and median age folks alike, God has a plan for us at every stage in life. God has a plan to work in and through us. And sometimes the, the greatest things he does in our life, the way he used uh, us in the most impactful way, sometimes comes at stages in life that we would have never planned it. We would have never guessed it. We say things like prime of life to refer to certain ages. But the Bible knows not of that. It just knows of people who are available to God. And we need to be like Daniel. Finishing well. Be determined was number four. Be determined to finish well. Be determined to finish. People of unshakable devotion are determined to finish well. Daniel didn't stop. It was when he was 15 and it was when he was 45 and when he was 65 and when he's 85. He's the same guy available and devoted to God. See, we think of Daniel in the lion's den as a children's or youth story, like I said earlier, but it's a senior adult story. Right? It's a senior adult story. He wasn't 15, and here he is faithfully used by by God all through his life, and he's finishing well. See, a life of unshakable devotion to God, yes, it means a life of consistently walking with God. It means a life of believing God at all times. It means a life of living as a witness to a watching world, and it means finishing well. But don't misunderstand, a life of unshakable devotion to God can only be lived by those who have discovered the unshakable devotion of God, meaning God's love and God's faithfulness. See, we can't be devoted to God unless we know him as the one devoted to us. Uh, We need to know the deliverer, the rescuer, if we're going to walk in devotion. See, this story, as much as any story in the book of Daniel, points us not to Daniel, but ultimately to the deliverer, it points us ultimately to Jesus, three Bible scholars in particular, Trimper Longman and Towner and Golden Gate, these commentators, right, who have studied this stuff for years and they talk about all these these different pictures of Jesus we get throughout the Bible and they say this one in particular really gives us this strong picture of how Daniel points us to Jesus. For instance, he he was framed with a false charge by those that disliked him. Jesus was framed by the religious leaders that hated him. Daniel was arrested after praying Jesus was arrested in the garden after praying. Darius worked to see Daniel released, but failed to do so. Pilate indicated a willingness to release Jesus, but ultimately washed his hands of it. But Tripper Longman says this, he says, quote, The big difference between the two is that Daniel emerges without a scratch while Jesus dies. Yet that difference is what underlines the superiority, superiority of the reality of its foreshadow. Jesus dies, yet he emerges from the tomb. Daniel going into the den and emerging unscathed is supposed to remind us that we know one who went into a much more precarious and dangerous situation and died there. That Jesus went and he took our sin and he, he, he took the judgment and wrath we deserved and he died and was buried in a tomb, in a den of death. But he comes out, not unscathed, he comes out resurrected, right? De- having defeated death. Daniel's release reminds us that God can release us from our sin, from death and from hell. It reminds us how Jesus went into that den of death and came out alive. It reminds us that Jesus did that for us, to save us, that Christ died for us. It reminds us of the devotion of Jesus to us, that he'd lay down his life for us. It reminds us of the devotion of God, that he so loved the world that he'd give his only begotten son. So you wanna be devoted to God, you wanna love God supremely, Discover more and more how God loves you and his devotion to you. Let Jesus, more than Daniel, move you towards deeper to devotion to God. It's not about looking at Daniel's story, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, hitting ourselves in the chest, and going, All right, I got to psych myself out. I got to be more devoted. No, it, it, it's about letting Daniel's story point us to the one it points us to. It ends with what? A praise of the deliverer, a praise of the rescuer, and looking to him and going, Man, only he can rescue me and deliver me and strengthen me to live in such a way that shows this kind of unyielding devotion. Let me ask you this morning, do you know the God who delivers? Have you been rescued from sin and from death and from hell? Have you been transformed? Are you being transformed? Have you put your faith in Christ as Lord and as Savior? If you haven't, there's never a better time than today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation and today means today. There's never a better time to trust Christ, but If like me, you're a believer in Christ this morning, are we pursuing lives of unshakable devotion? (laughs) Are our private walks with God preparing us for the public pressures that may come? Are we living in such a way, in such unflinchingly consistent just in our walk with God and the patterns that we're placing into, are our patterns preparing us? Is our devotion preparing us? You see, people... Who make these, man, these incredible stories of how they stood for God and were used by God and, and how God worked through them in the midst of all these situations. It wasn't because something crazy happened in their life most of the time and then all of a sudden they woke up and were kind of like, now it's time to act like a Christian. No, they were living the life before that happened and it was preparing them for the moment. And the moment always comes. Are we being prepared? Let's pray.